This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy. Now, was that the longest intro to Miss Lou you've ever heard? Um, as we approach the tail end of the year, what better way to celebrate than with a show on the head, or more specifically, the brain? Today's radiotherapy will be all about that organ that accounts for less than 2% of your body weight, yet consumes 220% of your energy. The organ Woody Allen described as his second favourite, and the one Descartes forever divided into soul and body, thus creating a 400-year legacy of biological reductionism. Now, it also happens to be the offal my mother used to serve up as a dinner uh, disguised as potatoes. Any wonder I was terrible at anatomy. Professor Amanda Thrift is Head of Stroke and Ageing Research at Monash University and is a past president of the Stroke Society of Australasia. Her main interests are in preventing stroke and vascular disease. So guess what Amanda will be in to talk about with us today? If you said strokes, snap to you. There is still so much we don't know about the causes, but we have learnt leaps and bounds, or we have learnt heaps, I should say, in the last decade about prevention and treatment. Prof Thift will be giving us the lowdown. Now, keeping us doctors honest will be Emma G. With a background in occupational therapy and a survivor of a stroke herself, Emma is an inspirational speaker on recovery and empowerment. Her list of presentations is miles long, and her book, Reinventing Emma is a vivid account of her time before, during and after her stroke. She is the embodiment of tenaciousness and resilience and it is our great pleasure to have her in the studio this morning. Dr John Waterston is a neurologist in private and public practice. He has an interest not just in the brain but in the two somethings that attach to it, the ears. It's an area known as otoneurology, not eight brain, that would be octoneurology, but Oto ear neurology. He deals in issues such as vertigo and migraine, and I hear on the grapevine that many of the headaches we used to think of just plain old headaches may actually be migranous in nature. John will tell us all. So kick back and let us do the hard work of lifting the lid on the brain. For the next hour on Radiotherapy Oil, you are with me, Dr. Malpractice, and co-host Nurse EpiPen. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got. I love that Robert Palmer track. Every time I hear that, I'm just getting the vibe that it's Sunday morning and that I have to pad at least 30 seconds while Nurse EpiPen takes photos <laughs> right during your... Hey, we've got a radio show. Oh, good morning. Good morning. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. Uh, I'm I'm not on. Up. Yes, you're, you're on now. I'm on. Hey, um, listen, <sighs> lots of things happening in the studio this morning and lots of things happening during the week in medicine. Tell us some of the stuff that you've been doing. Well, which stuff are you thinking about? Because I want to talk about a film that I saw. Oh, yeah, tell us, tell us, tell so us. So, The Children Act mm-hmm. in the British Film Festival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was with uh, Emma... Thompson. Thompson, yep. Who's just been made Dame Emma no Thompson, who wore runners to the presentation. And Prince William gave her um, the award and she tried to steal a kiss from him. Ooh. But, no, it's against <laughs> royal protocol. But I was so moved by this film. Yeah, tell us about and it. I'm not going to do any spoilers, but it's about um, a, a, law, a, a judge 
who has to preside over many children's cases and one of her cases is addressing a blood transfusion for a Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. And it struck a chord with me because I did look after somebody mm. in intensive care when I mm. was working there many, many years ago where there was a young woman dying mm. and her family wouldn't consent to her. She was over the age of 18, mm-hmm. which is the legal age to give consent and to refuse medical treatment. And her family overruled her because she was going to die and she did survive. But I know nothing about what happened to her afterwards. Mm. But this is a story, this Children Act, which is written by Ian McHugh, who's an author who's written Solar and Chesil Beach and quite a few books. And it's this is such it pulls at all your heartstrings, especially if you're medical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't even you don't have to be medical because it's a family issue and what happens to this young boy and she obviously I can tell it's you can know you know that she's going to um, prescribe the allow the dr- transfusion, but it's just what goes on behind her mind and how she presides and has to make decisions in the favour of minors. Mm. And it's her story and it's brilliantly acted and I can't rave about it enough, but take your tissues because it's so moving. Do you know, it's one of those issues that often divides people. I mean, you go to a dinner party, you'll get six, six people saying, you know, oh, definitely you should get the transfusion. Six saying, no, absolutely no way you should respect you know, their religious beliefs. So it is one of those ethical situations ethical. That, that comes up again and again uh, and again. And, you know, I was just, what was that show I was watching? Was it Tomorrow Today um, on the ABC? Uh, it was a show that had uh, Professor Julian Sevalescu, who uh, I went to university with. No, no, no. Uh, and uh, they were talking about the ethics of um, genetic uh, manipulation of babies and stuff. And, you know, we used to think of this kind of stuff five, ten years ago. It was, oh, it'll never happen. We don't have to think about it. But it's here now. Yes. You know, this is the kind of ethical stuff that we have to catch up on. Yeah. Um, and so often it's not the, um, it's not the answer often comes from outside the circle that created the question. So, you know, movies, dance, uh, uh, music. and Something outside of the, the area of medicine will often provide more of an answer than I think what happens inside of medicine. And, and as you say, it's very moving. Yeah, and being exposed to it. But one of the other flip sides of this is that with the um, this Jeho- with people, Jehovah's Witnesses, not being able to accept blood, is that they've made, they've improved surgery where it's... Ah, oh, yeah. So they... Yeah, and also they um, make them bloodless. They try to reduce blood loss as much as possible. So you can have heart operations and all sorts of things. It's amazing how religion can improve the outcomes of surgery. Yeah, and that's not only for them, and then it's bloodless. Hey, listen, I I was reading some really fascinating stuff. Oh, here we go. Uh, Now, talking about ethics, talking about ethics, right, have you ever heard of the trolley thought experiment? No? No? No. So so basically this is it. So it was a philosophical thought experiment that people thought, ah, we'll just try this out just to see what it's like in our heads, you know, one of those things. So the basic uh, thought experiment is this. A trolley or a tram is in San Francisco. It's careening down a hill and it's going to careen into five people and kill five people. You are at a lever. You can pull this lever and turn the trolley off its tracks, but it will kill one person. Would you do that or wouldn't you do that? And so up until like recently, that was just thought of an interesting thought experiment. But now with driverless cars and artificial intelligence, we've got to think gee, what happens if the car is about to smash into five people over to the left or three people over to the right? Which one's it going to do? If, it has to, if somebody has to die, what are you going to do? So a group of... Re- this is published in Nature, but I read it in The Economist. Um, 
This was a paper published in Nature by Edmund Awad from um, MIT, that's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he and his group created this thing called a Moral Machine, which is basically a website, <clears throat> and they put this website up and they, they asked people, okay, the car, this car is going to kill somebody. Um, it's either going to kill uh, one person or a dog or uh, a pregnant lady or um, an old man, da 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 so they came up with a list of uh, probabilities of what people would say of who should be killed rather than, you know, with a driverless car, than just your average standard person. After that, they had something like 40 million decisions made from, two, made from people from 233 countries. And this is a little graph which works really well for radio, but, <laughs> I'll, but I'll read this out. So the person that they that uh, they said was least that after all these 40 million decisions said would least likely should be hit was a person with a pram so a lady or man yes. with a pram because yes. it's a young baby and that was i think it looked like about 18 percent uh probability compared with saving the average adult the next of person that should be saved was a girl then a boy so girls were slightly higher likely to be saved than boys then a pregnant woman yeah their ladies are holding up their hands then a then listen this pregnant woman then a male doctor then a female doctor oh whoops then a female executive then a male athlete and the least likely thing to be saved was a cat and slightly less uh, slightly more likely to be saved than a cat and this is still very negative in terms of compared to the average person was a criminal and then a dog so you can see in red here this works really well for radio in terms of you know, people were much less likely to save a cat or a dog than uh, a standard person, but a criminal was just slightly rated higher than a than a than a dog. I just that's fascinating how oh. people. I mean, and this is this is just people's decisions. This is forty million decisions over the internet, and this is the kind of thing again. Ethics. Ten years ago, you thought, yeah, nice thought experiment, but really, what does it matter now with driverless cars? You've got to think about it. And you know, the other interesting thing too. I'm going on a long monologue here. People were asked. People were asked with driverless cars, do you reckon you should, um, uh, you know, if there's, a, if there's a chance between killing um, the, uh, say, three occupants of a car or uh, uh, one person, sorry, the, the occupant of a, of a car or uh, uh, three people standing on a street corner, what should the car do? People would say, well, it should kill the occupant of the car rather than three people, but not if it's my car. <laughs> <laughs> Fair dinkum. How do you deal with that? Uh, can I say something? Yeah. So it's ethics, what, man. What, ethics. Yeah. Well, what happened with the latest incident in Burke Street mm. uh, outside uh, JB Hi-Fi, with this guy wielding the knife and stuff, mm. and the police, and that the, all the people in the streets surrounding say, "Shoot him! Shoot mm. him! Shoot him! Shoot him!" Well, you know, and it's they're really tough decisions, and you know, people. Are, Acting and saying things. And sure. Oh, heightened state of emotions. Heightened, yeah. Everybody's terrified. Oh. You, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw those pictures and I actually tried not to look at them. Um, my feeling was, I mean, my, my first thing was the police. Those poor guys, uh, people there. Sta- I mean, managing they're, they're it. Managing that situation. Jesus. Free Triple R. Ah, good morning, listeners. And in the studio, we have Dr. Malpractice. We have Emma. Oh, <laughs> pipe down. Uh, Emma G, Mandy Thrift, and John Waterston. And it's really a very poignant show today because we were at a dinner last night, and 
a guy's best friend has uh, had a stroke mm. and died. And so I'm really fascinated by um, what Mandy and, in fact, all our guests can offer today. And I just wanted to say how I know Mandy. Mm. So Mandy is an epidemiologist and a whiz-bang public health uh, person who's uh, been in stroke research for as long as I've known her, 20, 30, 25 years. And uh, she's very uh, kind giving up her Sunday morning to come and talk to us. And um, Emma G, as we mentioned before, is a survivor of a stroke and um, is an OT in the background of her life and um, has kind of come in again as well to come and speak with us. So I think we'll just let them take it away, Mandy. Oh, thanks so much for having me here, Ebby Penn. It's absolutely uh, a thrill. So stroke is one of those diseases that just strikes people down. And uh, in Australia last year, we had about 56,000 of them. So it's a lot. And people think that it only happens in people who are old. But in reality, uh, people have them in middle age, as, as you just said, with your friend's friend uh, last night. Um, but uh, it also happens in childhood as well. So, you know, we, we really uh, have to try and find ways that we can prevent ourselves from having it. And how do you do that? So the main risk factors for, for stroke include high blood pressure, um, and that's probably the biggest risk factor for stroke stroke. Um, The best way to manage high blood pressure is to do a bit of exercise, lose a bit of weight. Um, Also make sure you're taking your blood pressure lowering medications if you're prescribed. Mandy, can I just interrupt there for a second? So uh, the best way to manage high blood pressure um, is, is, one of the best ways is exercise. I'm interested from a personal level because, you know, I treat this show as my medical consultation. if, if somebody does have high blood pressure, what's the effect of, of, of exercise and losing weight? Is it comparable to taking a tablet? Is it, you know, we're we talking you'll only change your blood pressure a bit or will it actually make a big difference to your blood pressure? Yeah, well, it, it depends on the people really mm. and ha- how, how well they keep up their exercise mm-hmm. regimes mm. and how much weight they lose. Yeah. You can uh, lower blood pressure by 10 millimetres of mercury mm-hmm. just by losing Um, you know, a few kilos and introducing some exercise. So it can be very effective. And there are lots of people who manage their blood pressure just through lifestyle measures. Because I'm I'm thinking if I'd prefer to take a tablet, side effects, got to remember it, cost, compared to exercise and losing weight, which has all the other benefits. I mean, I'm going to be going for exercise. And surely it's, it's hard to get that message across to a lot of people because obviously a lot of people are taking tablets. Yeah, look, I think the the main thing is that there's a lot of time involvement and there's a commitment sure, to right. exercise. And, you know, at the beginning of every year we have our <laughs> New Year's resolutions and we decide we're going to go to the gym uh, every two days or things. And, you know, who's still doing it six months later? Can I just bring Emma G on? Emma, um, thanks for coming in. That's OK, thank you. Uh, we know you made a, a big effort and you're up very early uh, this morning. Um, just what uh, what uh, Mandy was saying about exercise, you were in. Can you just tell us a bit about your story? But the reason I'm bringing you in now is because you were incredibly fit. Yeah, I am. Um, uh, my stroke was due to an arteriovenous malformation in my brainstem. 
So that really, for um, listeners, is a, a tangle of blood vessels and arteries in your womb, my case, in my brain, mm-hmm. and normally they untangle, but in my case they're going to burst. And during surgery to remove that, um, the surgeon actually made an error and it bled into my cerebellum and I had a stroke. Right. So my stroke was not due to high blood pressure or any familial um, circumstances, which is quite prevalent in stroke. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I was a marathon runner, a full-time therapist, and even in my recovery as a stroke survivor, um, because, like you say, the side effects of medication can be quite brutal, um, I managed my chronic nerve pain with uh, moving and exercise and don't take medication at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so Mandy, so, so high blood pressure is a cause of some strokes, but in, in Emma's case, uh, the stroke was due to something else. What else can people do in terms of prevention for stroke? So there are other lifestyle changes that they can make so uh, having high cholesterol level is another major risk factor for stroke and just changing your diet so you've got less um, fat in your diet so more vegetables like the thing that always amazes me is when when I look at some of the statistics that come out of uh, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare in Canberra is that 95% of Australians don't eat the recommended serves of vegetables per day that's 95% it's only five serves a day and I just don't get it (laughs) so those are very simple things that you can do and two serves of fruit like who can't do that Yeah, yeah It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, 95%. Get away, really. No, absolutely true. So, and Mandy, what sort of um, research is your institute doing where you're working? Could, would you like to just say where you are working and what you've been doing? So I work at the Stroke, stroke and Ageing Research uh, Group at Monash University. Uh, we, we cover... Uh, our research methods are quite diverse, so we've been trying to find ways to prevent people from having another stroke. And... Part of it is this prevention thing as well and taking their medications and uh, uh, those uh, important treatment regimes that we have to remember. Um, And the thing is, is that we know what can prevent these strokes from reoccurring, but it's getting people to take those medications. Uh, It's getting people to adopt their lifestyle changes. And, um, you know, that's... The difficulty. So the work that we're doing is trying to transfer, tra- uh, transform how we get doctors giving patients uh, prescriptions for medications, how we transfer that knowledge between hospital and general practice, uh, how, how we make sure there's this continuum of care. Emma, when you go out and do your public speaking, and you've done you know, a ton of it, what what's the kind of knowledge that people have about stroke and prevention of stroke? Do you think they're sort of full bottle or are you telling them stuff for the first time? Um, when I um, speak to a lot of different audiences, yeah, the, um, the under, their understanding, even those um, are largely health professionals and I myself who worked in stroke rehab we're not aware of the fact that stroke does happen to young people. Like Mandy um, mentioned earlier, that there is such a... Uh, when you're already fit and healthy, that 
you know, why would that happen to you? Mm. Um, so, you know, they think they're, they're invincible from that. And, um, you know, even I was dumbfounded when I had a stroke. I never touched a cigarette or... Yeah. Yeah. So, so Emma, how old were you when you had your stroke? So I was 24 years old and working full-time as an OT in stroke rehabilitation. And it was just that I climbed a mountain um, which caused the, the malformation in my brain to bleed oh. a little bit mm. um, as they thought the high altitude would cause what Yeah, yeah. contributing. So did you know uh, that you were having a stroke when it occurred and what did you do? Um, no, I, um, I, I was, I did have quite a lot of symptoms when I was um, coming down the mountain and I returned to work and I became quite clumsy when I ran and I felt quite dizzy and, but I put that down to just being tired and, you know, I was a marathon runner so I didn't really listen to what my, the issues were and, um, yeah, when I actually had my big brainstem mm. stroke, it was during surgery, so I was asleep having a dream yeah. at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, which mountain were you climbing? Uh, Mount Kinabalu in Malaysia. You're joking. So you were overseas. Probably, I imagine it's quite isolated. Yeah, and it's quite surreal because you descend the mountain, and I went with three girlfriends and. You descend the mountain and there are just grave like crosses where people have died oh. all the way down and it's uh quite difficult terrain to to navigate yeah. um and you you've got a lot of muscle fatigue so i was like crab crab crawling down this mountain sure. um and also also the contributing things like being on anti-malarials and that have side effects yeah. anyway. So it wasn't until I went back to work and things were not right yeah. um, that I suddenly thought, okay, I better go into emergency here. Mandy, um, what's, the, what's the rough breakdown in terms of the age distribution of stroke? I mean, you know, what Emma says is, you know, we, we think stroke, we think older people, but... But, I mean, how often does it happen in younger people? So the um, average age is around 72. So, right. um, you know, that's older than for heart attack, but um, but uh, it's still relatively young in, in um, these days. But uh, probably about uh, a third of strokes occur in people under about the age of 65. Really? Yeah. So, so it's quite a lot. A third of strokes yeah. happen. So yeah. that, did you say there were 56,000 strokes a year? About 56,000 strokes a year. So probably about, what's about 18,000 or so happen in people under the age of 65. Well, I think your maths is better than mine, but right, yeah. Right, but right about that. <laughs> and um, just, I mean, we should talk a little bit about what people can do when they're getting the symptoms of strokes. Would you mind just telling us what the symptoms are and what you can do because there are things nowadays that uh, have really in- improved the prognosis absolutely so the the thing to remember is the word fast and that fast. that stands for face um speech time um so there's a facial droop there's um uh arm uh, drift 
and uh, speech disturbance. And the time thing is a, a factor that you just have to get to hospital as quickly as possible. And what are they going to do in hospital? So there are a lot of things that they can do now, like there have been really great gains in the last uh, 10 years or so. So um, the, the most exciting new procedure is what's called endovascular clot retrieval and what they do is they go into your blood vessel and actually extract the clot that's in your brain and how do they do that yeah look i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i think you should ask john that question we'll we'll ask john because it sounds like fantastic voyage where you go there and you sort of laser the clot um, well, in fact, we might we might bring John in uh, now. We were gonna, we were we were keeping him sort of on ice until later on. But uh, John Watterson, neurologist at uh, several hospitals, thanks for coming in. Good morning, everyone. Yes, um, uh, clot retrieval has been a big advance uh, in treatment of a stroke. Neurologists or most neurologists don't do it. There are a few people that have been trained, but it's usually done by uh, interventional radiologists. So what they do is they feed a tiny wire up into the affected artery and use some form of uh, retrieval device like a um, a little bag that opens up and pulls the clot out. That is just amazing. So, I mean, the roadmap into the brain's arteries and veins, you know, it's like, uh, like, you know, the traffic going into Rome Central Station. It's incredibly complex. So a radiologist is able to negotiate a wire from your groin up into that particular area? Yes, they can. It's a very tricky procedure, but these guys are good at doing it and um, it's not uh, without some risk but sure, uh, sure, sure. and it doesn't always work, but uh, we've seen some amazing outcomes mm. with this treatment. Yeah. It is uh, 10.30, you're listening to Radiotherapy. In the studio is me, Ami. Is me, is me, Dr. Malpractice, and Nurse EpiPen. Morning. Still here. <laughs> is me, me yeah. Uh, Dr. Is John Waterston, who is uh, going to be on the show a little bit later, Professor Amanda Thrift, and Emma G. Now, Emma, I know you've got to go soon, uh, and you very kindly gave us half an hour this morning. Tell us, I mean, there's there's so much to talk about with, with all the things that you do, and I, I, look, I was absolutely... I, I spent a long time on your website, I've got to say, which is unusual for me. Um... You've got a book out called um, Reinventing Emma uh, yes. for sale at all good bookshops and on the web. Yes, yes. T- t- tell us, w- what, it, what was it that, that motivated you to write the book and what's in it? I mean, how did you... I mean, because you don't just think, oh, I'm going to write a book. I mean, it's bloody hard to write a book at the best of times, let alone, you know, if you've had a stroke and obviously very emotional kind of stuff. What's in it and what prompted you to write it? I think... Um Reinventing Emma really stems from my experience um, since my birth um, as an occupational therapist and then becoming a patient, a recipient of the services I'd once provided. And in my um, recovery, which was now 13 years ago, I was unable to walk or speak um, and had to relearn to do all those things. And so I undertook uh, very much an observational role. I couldn't articulate a lot that was going on, but I could record my experiences. And so I did do that. And then when I went out in the community and integrated out again, I um, returned to work and then relearned to speak, commenced my own speaking business and decided to reflect on my experiences. And now I was able to communicate them better 
um, record, write, write a, uh, a memoir that would hopefully impact everyone um, and their experiences of, I guess, facing adversity and, um, not, yeah, empower people that are going through difficult circumstances but also educate carers and other health professionals. Um, yeah. Because you're certainly a person... Uh, who enjoys challenges, marathon running, climbing mountains. I mean, that's sort of baked into your personality from what I gather. Yeah. So, so, so I, I, you probably brought, well, you did bring that to your recovery from the stroke, which is yeah. from, from not being able to walk or talk. Um, how long did that, just briefly, how long did that take you to be able to, to, to walk again and, and articulate? Quite, uh, quite a few years. Yeah. I lived in rehabilitation yeah. um, for quite a while and um, I'm still in a walking frame so I do still have um, challenges that I face every day as a stroke survivor but yeah I'm very fortunate that that is a in my personality type that is a huge motivator I enjoy that challenge and being able to draw on what I have found difficult to enable other people is something I I'm very passionate about doing now, so, yeah. The book is called uh, Reinventing Emma. It's by Emma G, G-E-E. Um, head to her website. Um, as I say, it's uh, a fascinating read. You're a, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. It's our great pleasure to have in the studio... Dr. John Waterston. Back! <laughs> and can I just say, yeah. it's his first time on radio. Get away! And he's so excited. I can tell. <laughs> you look like an old, like you've he done this a couple of times. He's he? Yeah, he's chilled. He walks up to the microphone. Yeah, brace. Piece of cake. Um, I guess when you've been removing uh, bits of blood clot from people's heads or overseeing it, this kind of thing, just is, this is just too easy for you. Radio? Well, I... Don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> it's very exciting, <laughs> and I'm uh, pleased to be here. Can pop it on his CV now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, John, um, obviously you're a neurologist. You work in private and pri- public practice, and your specialty—one of your specialty areas—is the ear. How does a neurologist get interested in an ear? Well, that's a good question. Um, a lot of neurologists and ENT specialists throw their arms up when they have to see a patient with dizziness and vertigo. It's uh, traditionally thought to be a very difficult area to sort out. It often falls in the cracks between neurology and ENT. Um, I was encouraged to take an interest in it by one of my former mentors and uh, it's funny how your life works out. Isn't it? it, You you kind of fall into things uh, often I think in a career rather than have this burning passion. So the ear from a neurological point of view is responsible for dizziness and vertigo. Could you just explain what a patient experiences when they come to you with those problems? Well, vertigo can ju- be due to um, ear or neurological problems and some patients are quite disabled by their vertigo. Um, they experience severe vertigo, can't walk, very nauseated. What, what exactly is ver- mm. vertigo? Yeah, what's it like? Well, I suppose the simplest uh, way to explain it is that it's an illusion of motion, often a spinning motion, the sort of thing you get if you spin round on the spot with your eyes closed. So 
Uh, look, to say I've got vertigo, I'm sitting in my chair now looking at you, but I'm experiencing the feeling of whizzing around in a chair. I mean, that must be terribly distressing for people. Oh, it's very distressing, and uh, some people are very disabled by it, and mm. it's, a, it's a common symptom. Really? Look, how common, I mean, roughly, would it 1% of the population, half a percent? Yeah, probably more than 1%. Uh, it's probably one of the most common symptoms that people would go to their GP for. Really? I didn't know that. So, and I was reading somewhere that um, women postmenopausal after 50, there's like a, 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 a gaggle of women getting these symptoms. Is that so? Yes, I see a lot of women uh, around that age presenting with vertigo for the first time. Now, what's the, what's the cause? I mean, it's obviously something in the ear, but what happens in the little ear? Well, we've got to try and figure out what the problem is. The most common cause is when you get these loose crystals that fall into one of the balance canals of the inner ear, and every time you move your head, these crystals slosh around in the inner ear fluid and uh, make people feel dizzy. Um, the other common cause which we've recognised, uh, particularly in uh, postmenopausal women, is uh, a condition called vestibular migraine. So this is migraine which uh, causes symptoms in the vestibular system. Vestibular migraine? Yeah, where's that? That wasn't in my medical school, teacher. <laughs> it's in a new canal. Vestibular migraine. So when you say, let's break this down, vestibular is that part of the ear that controls the sense of motion. On, yeah? yeah, it's the part of the ear, but it's also the brain pathways that are responsible for balance. Oh, right. And a migraine, what's the definition of a migraine? Well, um, it depends whether you're talking about migraine headache, um, which is a, a headache which is often accompanied by nausea and mm. other symptoms, including light and sound sensitivity. But people can get neurological symptoms with a migraine. They can get visual disturbance, loss of vision, zigzag lines in their vision, but vertigo is also a common symptom. Right. And in particular, you were saying that postmenopausal women get it. Is that because they get the crystals? No, this is, um, well, they can get the crystal mm. problem, but uh, when migraine uh, causes vertigo, um, it usually causes what we call spontaneous attacks of vertigo, which come on out of the blue. So what you're walking down the street, all of a sudden, bang, you bang. feel... Jeez. What, so you could be driving? Exactly. That sounds pretty dangerous. And that's why it's so yeah. distressing. People mm. become quite anxious about when it might happen. You know, if they're out and about or going to a social function or driving, um, it can be very debilitating. Mm. And there's some ways to help people that with these um, crystals in their ear. Do, do you want to talk about that? Yes, well, this is a, a, a great thing for doctors because we don't often cure things with hands-on therapy, so we can do particular manoeuvres on the couch to try and tip these crystals out of the canal. And it's a very gratifying treatment when you learn how to do this. So unless you're into spinal manipulation, there aren't many things you can cure with hands-on therapy. So hang on, when you say hands-on therapy, what, you take the head and you shake it or move no, it? No, we, we tip the head right down and then we roll the patient over um, in a certain fashion to tip the crystals out. There are a number of different manoeuvres, but... Um, to tip the, most... the crystals out? Get out yeah. of here, Fenningham! <laughs> I've, I've, is this the same thing? Is this what you used to do for benign positional vertigo? Exactly. Oh, there you go. Medical school wasn't a total waste. <laughs> So now they've realised, or you guys have told us, that it's the crystals that cause this um, vertigo, vertigo. And uh, again, we're on radio, but you're saying you take the patient's head and you can rotate it in a particular way or manipulate it, and that is curative. Exactly. Often after one treatment, sometimes you need to repeat it, but uh, 
Yeah, so it probably works in over 90% of cases. That is astounding. Because, I mean, you know, often in urology, not every, things are treatable but not curable as such, or medicine in general, I guess, and here you are fixing something. Well, yes. Oh. Um, Sur- it's surgical. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so that's the crystal form of vertigo. Um, what, about, what about, you know, if it's not a crystalline form and people are distressed by it, what else can you do for them? Well, we could, there are drugs that we use to prevent migraine headaches, which also prevent the neurological symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other causes of vertigo, like Meniere's disease, where you get uh, a build-up in the pressure compartment in the inner ear and where there are various medications and other treatments that can be used to, yeah. to treat that as well. Gee. Um, and I've heard sometimes it gets so bad that people have an ablation, like a, um, a destructive operation. Can you tell us what would drive the treatment to that end? Well, some people, particularly with Meniere's disease, experience disabling attacks of vertigo which don't respond to medical treatment. Um, You can imagine how debilitating it is and uh, in desperation you need to destroy the balance part of the inner ear to stop the attacks. And the brain's very good at coping with that one balance organ. It can still use the other one. So traditionally in the past this involved going in and actually cutting the balance nerve but we now have ways where we can inject a chemical uh, called gentamicin into the middle ear which causes a vestibular ablation and that um, can be done as an office procedure it doesn't have the risks of surgery and it's often very successful mm. um, uh, uh, look i'm just going to throw a whole lot of questions at you as they come to mind i told you this is like a dinner party conversation <laughs> before the show um, are there tests like you know you guys and ladies, you people in urology have the most amazing toys, you know, when it comes to tests, you know, got CT and MRI and PET scan and EEGs. What kind of tests can you do on somebody's ear? Because it's so small. Well, you should come along one day. Oh, I will. See, now you've invited me, I'm coming. <laughs> um, oh, we do all sorts of things. Obviously, we do hearing tests, but we do all sorts of fun things like spinning people around in rotating chairs, uh, sticking hot and cold water in their ears to make them feel dizzy and trying to diagnose what the underlying problem is in the inner ear. Can you do MRIs of the ear? Uh, In specialised centres, it's not something that's done routinely, but um, the inner ear is so small, it's encased in bone, and MRI is not a great technique for looking at uh, the inner ear compartments. Uh, Ear health. Ooh! Can we do... do anything like should we be wearing more things in our ears when we're swimming or not going too deep or is it an age thing is there anything that you could offer the often offer the listeners about how maybe to thwart some of these conditions oh no not really i suppose the most important thing about ear health is protecting our ears from loud noise because that's become a major issue with causing tinnitus and hearing loss, people who wear loud headphones and listen to loud music, people who operate um, noisy machinery and don't wear proper ear protection. That's probably the greatest uh, prevention that people can can use. Now, John, I wanted to get on to the topic of migraines. So we're going to move away from the ear and to the head centrally. And I might bring Mandy in on this as well to, to see what the epidemiology is like of... of um, of migraines, or that is how common it is. Um, how, um, John, I mean, migraines, in the old days we used to think, well, when I was taught at medical school, um, they weren't that common and they were brutally severe, lay you out for days. 
there are still those types of migraines, obviously, but the thinking has gone to more that, well, some of the more common types of headaches might be migrainous as well. Yes, um, we also talk about tension-type headaches, which I think are pretty rare. I think mm-hmm. most uh, headaches that people get are probably related to migraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they aren't always um, severe, uh, but as you say, they can be very severe and uh, knock people out for days when so, they're bad. So what differentiates, a, I mean, from a pathological level, a, a, a migraine headache to a, another type of headache? What, 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 what is a migraine to sort of at a... At a microscopic level? Well, we think migraine is caused by uh, a chemical cascade that occurs in the brain. It used to be thought it was primarily a blood flow problem. And we do see blood flow changes in the brain, but it's secondary to this neural activation uh, in the trigeminovascular pathways of the brain, which cause these uh, vascular effects. So the trigeminal nerve is is a nerve that comes out of your head <laughs> that's my Back anatomy, that's my anatomy. <laughs> hand it over to john where's your trigeminal nerve yes well it, it supplies the the feeling over the face but it also supplies all the vascular uh, structures and the uh, sensation to the dura of the brain as well the lining of the brain mm. oh so the the trigeminal nerve oh this is interesting so that's the one that makes you feel a headache or yes a, a, yeah ratio um and we are understanding that migraine somehow that nerve goes into some sort of a spasm or a shock or well it's a bit more complex than that uh, it involves all sorts of pathways involving serotonin um, that are innervating the blood vessels and the dura uh, of the brain mm. um, and most people would probably experience at least one migraine in their lifetime so we all have this propensity to develop migraine but there are other factors like genetics which make people more susceptible mm. um, I, I remember we'll get on to treatments in a second but I remember that I, I used to have a friend and when she used to get a migraine she she would get cry she said initially that chocolate precipitated the migraine like she'd avoid chocolate because it brought on a migraine but then she said no no I think it's actually I get a hankering a taste for chocolate um, and that's part of the migraine I mean is is, have you, do you hear that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. well, the dietary... Uh, everyone knows there are possible dietary triggers for mm. migraine, but I think some of the things that have been talked about as dietary triggers are probably this prodromal phase that people can get before a migraine and they can feel euphoric, they can have cravings, and that may be the reason why people have described things like chocolate mm. and other dietary factors uh, as triggering their migraine. It may not all be a trigger some of it might be cravings right just going back to stroke is a headache ever a symptom of a stroke Ooh, good question yeah. yes um headache can be a symptom of stroke usually in association with other um, neurological features but some people can get hemorrhage causing stroke so you can get a hemorrhage in the brain or a hemorrhage around the brain what we call a subarachnoid hemorrhage and that can be a, a feature of stroke and uh, vertigo can be a symptom of stroke as well. So how does the average punter not freak out when they get a bad headache? I mean, what, do you, what, what, do you, what should you do if you get a bad headache? I mean, let's just say me, Mal, I get a bad headache as soon as I leave the studio. I mean, what differentiates that headache from a stroke? Are there any sort of defining features? Well, I, I suppose the most important thing 
um, is the association of other neurological signs. Uh, sudden onset of a headache, that, the headache that we see in subarachnoid hemorrhage is like someone has shoved an axe in the back of your head. So yeah. coming on instantaneously, that's always a, a, a bit worry. of a red flag. And uh, if, if that's a severe headache uh, and it's not settling down, people should always go straight to hospital if they experience that sort of symptom. So it's commonly described as a thunderclap headache. So it just happens really suddenly and it's really severe. Um, so, so if that happens to you, I'd be going straight to hospital. Yeah. Well, isn't there, wasn't there a, a type of headache that you get um, post-coitally or during coitus? Was that, is that the subarachnoid hemorrhage? Is that... No, that, that's the other cause of instantaneous headache, what we call benign sex headache. Or uh, That refers account... to the headache, not to the sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, which, which people get at the time of orgasm, at, and it can be like the headache of a subarachnoid hemorrhage, but oh. it's not. It's thought to be due to vascular spasm in the brain, right. but it can be associated with exertion. So some people get these uh, benign headaches coming on with uh, exertion and exercise. Yeah. Um, and in terms of um, treatments, let's talk prevention. What can you do to prevent migraine? I'm looking between both of you. <laughs> Exercise, don't Yeah, well, all the things that Mandy was talking uh. about are very important in migraine prevention. So we need to look at all of the things that we should all be doing, but regular exercise, proper sleep routine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you get too little sleep or even too much sleep can trigger a migraine. Um, make sure you eat regularly, keep your fluid intake up. Um, but it's been shown that uh, all of those things can be very helpful in preventing mm. migraine headaches. And starting from the simplest to the more complex, what kind of treatments are available for people with migraines? Um, well, there are a number of uh, natural therapies, um, you know, high-dose B vitamins, sometimes riboflavin, magnesium. Uh, treatments can oh. sometimes help some people. Have, 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 is there evidence around that? Oh, look, there are a couple of trials. The evidence is not strong, but uh, there are two trials looking at um, vitamin B2. One showed a possible effect, one didn't, but we'll often recommend that sort of treatment, particularly in people who don't want to take pharmaceutical medications. So Vegemite on toast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder I haven't had a migraine for you. So uh, vitamins, um, uh, vitamin B in particular... It's, it's getting a bit of a resurgence, a bit of a renaissance vitamin B in a whole lot of areas. Um, magnesium, yeah. So these are over-the-counter at the supermarket type stuff you can get. What's the next level up you'd go for somebody with migraines, do you think? Well, there are a whole range of medications that we can use for migraine prevention, uh, beta blockers like propranolol. Um, there are other drugs, um, pisotophen. There are some, some of the drugs that we use to treat epilepsy uh, very good in low dose for migraine prevention. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a range of medications. Do you, do, I mean, this sounds like a dumb question. Do you ever do surgery or some procedure for, for migraine? Uh, well, it's not really, but there mm. are some newer treatments uh, coming on board. Yeah, um, so those. there's a, a receptor in the brain um, which... Uh, is responsible for causing pain. It's the CGRP oh, receptor. Yeah. Yeah. I know that one well. well. <laughs> Calcitonin gene-related peptide. And um, there are some monoclonal antibodies to that uh, receptor which uh, are just becoming available. People give them by injection once a month and the first one's just been 
released uh, in Australia. So it's at a very exciting time. So let me just see. I didn't even know this. So this is exciting. So you, there is an antibody to a brain receptor and that has now been made into a pharmaceutical and that is, can be given to people with m- intractable migraine? Would yes. Does it work for any other pain for them? Uh, I don't know if it's been trialled in any other areas, but um, um, the results in migraine are very good. Um, you may have heard that uh, botulinum toxin is also... Botox. Yeah, yeah Botox. That we so use that's the excuse to get rid of can, our wrinkles. That's the excuse <laughs> I can use. I've got a migraine. Um, but that's, that's interesting from a, from a physiological level that an antibody, a monoclonal antibody, crosses the blood-brain barrier to get it into a receptor. Yeah, well, we're in the age of designer medicine now. If we figure out the causes of uh, migraine and other neurological symptoms, we can design drugs to uh, block those receptors that are thought to be causing the problem. So given it's Sunday morning and we've got a few minutes left, what causes a hangover headache? Oh, good question. Thank you. Sunday morning hangover. I don't have one. Well, obviously too much alcohol, but... uh, (laughs) Um, well, some people think it many hangover headaches are a form of migraine. Um, fluid? Do we need more fluid or...? More fluid, less alcohol. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, perhaps some prophylactic uh, paracetamol. Oh, and what's that, what's that um, brown thing, the capsule that dissolves in water uh, for hangovers? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't... No, nobody I has hangovers uh, I thought vitamin B was supposed to be good for hangovers as well, like Vegemite again, no? Well, the, it's, it's a nice colour, though. You know, <laughs> nice <Taste>. orange colour, <laughs> tastes good. Right. Um, that's interesting. I didn't realise it had been thought of as a migrant type thing. And just in two minutes, John, how did you get into neurology? Oh, good question again. Well, I'll Sorry. try and answer it quickly. Well, um, I've always been interested in physiology and uh, people who are attracted to neurology like problem solving. And I think... That's why I got into it. You, it's very much a hands-on specialty. You talk to people and you try and figure out what the problem is. Most answers come from the history um, rather than specialised investigations like MRI scans, but most people who do neurology enjoy problem-solving, I think, and like nutting out the answer to a difficult problem. Because, you know, in the days before MRI and CT scans, all you guys had was like your little tendon hammer and a couple of tuning forks and you had to locate where the problem was. It was exactly. And, and pins and feathers and things. That's right. Feathers, that's right. <laughs> we should Still let, got them. Still let got listeners them. know that that's to test sensation on somebody's <laughs> skin. Feathers. Um, thank you so much for, for coming in, Dr John Watterson. I mean, that's just... I, I, I've always loved neurologists because they're just... You know, they've... The, I'm going to sound dumb, but the brain is such an interesting organ, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, good to uh, to have you in and tell us about uh, migraine and uh, dizziness and vertigo. Thank you also to Professor uh, uh, Mandy, I'll call you, uh, Professor Amanda Thrift, um, for talking to us about stroke and all prevention. All the good work All the good work at Monash University. Thank you too. Also to Nurse EpiPen. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.